podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Double Century on the 99.94 Podcast Network. There is a hissing sound in the middle of a beautiful country house ground. Beside that is a beautiful English country house, kind of out of Downton Abbey or an Agatha Christie book. Watching on and playing are beautiful English archetypes, playboy lords, eaten educated grifters, random posh people, noble heritage, ladies who lunch. It does kind of feel more like a scene out of a period drama than a real cricket match. That's because this all happened at Stamford Hill in Nottinghamshire between World War I and World War II. The thing is that most of what I described is fairly normal for how the elite enjoyed their cricket in England of that period. But this hissing sound was not so normal. With the new batter coming out, they suddenly stop playing because the sound draws the attention of all the fielders. Everyone gathers around the new batter and the noise is coming from him, or rather more specifically from his pads. They are not a normal part of cricketer's gear. They are a special, inflatable set of pads to protect his brittle bones. He is scared of the ball while batting and is a hypochondriac. He often moves around in an electric wheelchair. He also has a nurse and he sometimes pays for the King's Reserve physician to visit his country house for checkups. His chauffeur, Robson, pumps the pads up with 23 pound pressure. He makes them ready for his employer before he goes out to bat. The batter then puts them on, right pad first, always, no exception. And they're not just inflatable pads, I should say. They're huge. They basically cover the entire stumps. As you may have guessed, the owner is an unusual man. If eccentricity could be measured like batting averages, he might have been Bradman. He converted his 3,000-acre property into a personal palace with 35 bedrooms, a nine-hole golf course, bowling green, trout lake, and a tennis court. There were two swimming pools as well, one of them with coral walls holding fountains and artificial caves added to the fantastic wooded parkland and formal gardens. There is also a sea lion pool and a penguin pool in England, yes. There is a personal theatre with a seating capacity for 352 people. This also has an organ, which was originally made for the Theatre de la Madeleine of Paris. It can be raised and lowered. There are secret tunnels and passengers, the kind you would see in medieval castles. He has built them because he loves to perform magic in front of his guests when he's not out hunting foxes, that is. And this is England, of that period, so obviously he has a cricket pitch as well. Because he has his own personal team. And this day, they are playing against the Leicestershire gentleman. He's just a very unusual person. Every time he walks through a door, he turns full circle. He sometimes put his flannel pants on his suit trousers. From a cricket perspective, he really cannot bat, hence the blow-up pads. The great cricket writer Stephen Chalk has written that no English first-class cricketer of the 20th century can have had less ability. But it doesn't matter, because his pads protect the stumps. John Gunn, the team umpire, never gives him out. Gunn sometimes asks the opposition bowlers to allow his team owner to get off the mark. The opposition umpires are also under similar instructions. Every team wants to play his side, because he is a great host. His lunches are famous, and you can't get as many matches if you make super-rich owners angry. So, no LBW. But he runs when the ball bounces off his pads, and weirdly enough, the umpires also don't announce leg buys. So he quite often remains not out on one or two. When he returns, he proudly tells the spectators, they couldn't get me out. And this is how it works. 
But the hissing sound is bothering him today, and that's because his pads, they're leaking. There is no way he's going to bat without his safety item. So he walks off the ground, and play is put on hold, everyone is watching, he sacks Robson, and then he declares the innings. The only bit of this story that was ever contradicted is Robson's sacking. The cricketer wrote of him, at once the most prolific patron of cricket between the wars, and comfortably the worst first-class cricketer. The man is Julian Kahn. This is his ground, his team, and his pads. And for a little while, he owned a lot of our game. And he did this all for one reason, because he never felt like he truly belonged. This season is about rich people who decided they could make cricket better, more about them, or sometimes both. Maybe they wanted to profit from it or just insert themselves in an 11 they had no right to be in. But they had the money and cricket was purchased by them for their own wants and needs. Welcome to the people who bought cricket. This episode is about Julian Kahn, a rich philanthropist who batted in oversized pads, had all-time great cricketers on his payroll, saved two county clubs from financial crisis, has a trophy named after him in Cuba, and spends a lifetime trying to be accepted by the British establishment. Julian Kahn's parents, Albert and Matilda, came from Germany. In Nottingham, Albert was the president of the Chaucer Street Synagogue and the Hebrew Philanthropic Society, and he also founded the Nottingham Furniture Company. Julian inherited his father's business, and he expanded it significantly between the wars. He saw potential in higher purchase and exploited it to the fullest. That helped him earn enough money to do, well, whatever he felt like. And he was a renowned philanthropist. He bought Lord Byron's home in Newstead Abbey and donated it to the Nottingham Corporation. He funded research in agriculture and childbirth, co-founded the National Birthday Trust and funded a maternity home in Stowport. And I think for our story, it is very important to understand Khan. He loved cricket, but he also desperately wanted to be accepted by the British establishment. The problem was that he was not a lord, but a businessman. And not Christian, but Jewish. So cricket was not just a passion for him. It was also a social ladder. He had enough money to build his own personal team. And in 1901, he created the Nottingham Furniture Company 11 with 16 of his father's employees. This was not uncommon for English business owners of that era. But Khan was only 19 then. By 1903, the team had 35 players. So he now founded a second team, the Knotts Ramblers. In 1904, the Ramblers won nine matches and lost two. In 1905, they won 11 and lost just one. In 1908, he founded his third team. And this time, he just put his name on it, Julian Khan's 11. He maintained all three teams at the same time. And one of his top recruits was South African legend Aubrey Faulkner. If you want to know how good Aubrey Faulkner was, we've actually done an entire series on him. Khan also owned another cricket ground in Nottingham, in West Bridgeford. Here, he had a pavilion with a huge collection of ancient bats. The pavilion could also be converted into a badminton court. He built the Stamford Hall ground later so he could watch cricket from home. Except for the Australians, Khan hosted every side that toured England. He even funded some of the touring teams. This included the South Americans of 1931, the only time a team made up of players from all over the continent ever toured to play cricket. And that was just in the summers. In the winters, his side toured Canada, Argentina, Jamaica, Ceylon, which is Sri Lanka obviously now, New Zealand, and kind of everywhere else. In 1928, they even visited Cuba. And the Cuban cricketers played for the Sir Julian Khan Trophy well until the 1950s. Between 1923 and 1939, his personal team played 621 matches. They lost 19 of them. And they basically did this with 10 men, 
because Khan the cricketer served no purpose in the side at all. In all archive matches, Khan scored 999 runs at 7.45. And remember that a good amount of those came off those stupid pads that he was wearing as well and were probably leg buys. He often batted at number 11. His batting actually became part of English folklore. When schoolboys bragged about their bowling, their friends would often taunt them with, call yourself a bowler? You couldn't bowl Julian Khan out. He also bowled a little bit as well. He loved bowling super slow lobs. He just tossed the ball up in the air without any pace. J.M. Barry, the creator of Peter Pan, wrote that Khan was so slow that he could run and stop the ball after bowling if he wanted to. Exaggeration? Probably. But maybe with Khan, it was not that unrealistic. The small crowd at his games would sometimes boo his bowling from time to time, saying things like, there will be snow on this when it comes down. When they booed for too long, Khan would face the pavilion, clap his hands, and his secretary or manager would run out, they would call the ground staff, and every spectator was then asked to leave the ground. You were not allowed to boo Khan on his personal property. He owned everything. He did get wickets at times, probably because he was playing against people who could really play and they weren't used to facing such slow and amateur bowling. Also because he put all of his best fielders out on the boundary. You've got to give him credit for that. And every time he did do something special, Khan would mount the ball in Stamford Hall. He was particularly proud of the 1937 trip to Ceylon and Malaya. He took only 10 wickets, but at 15.9 each. So he finished with a bowling average between Australian Jack Walsh's and South African Dennis Morkel's. And they were actual players. Walsh was a left-arm wrist spinner who played for Leicestershire. Morkel played 16 test matches for South Africa. These are not even close to the biggest name players that Julian Khan ever had available. We talked about Aubrey Faulkner before, but perhaps one of the most important ones was the great New Zealander Stewie Dempster, who averaged 65.72 in test cricket. Of all retired batters, only one man has more runs and a greater average than him, Don Bradman. And if you've not heard of Dempster, it's because he only played 10 test matches, because Khan never released him. In fact, after he got involved with Khan, Dempster visited New Zealand once, and it was part of Khan's team to play against New Zealand. Khan got Dempster to England and then put him on his payroll as a manager of one of his many furniture stores, which allowed Dempster to play as an amateur. Khan also saved the virtually bankrupt Leicestershire County side. As an amateur, Dempster could lead the county, but he only played for Leicestershire when Khan's team didn't have a match on. Khan also got England captains on his team, men like Lionel Tennyson, Arthur Carr, and Walter Robbins. There was also Bob Crisp of South Africa, the only bowler to take four wickets in four balls twice in first-class cricket. A couple more New Zealanders in Jeff Vivian and Roger Blunt. Especially when you're talking about South Africa and New Zealand, you're really talking about the associate cricket teams of those days. By taking Aubrey Faulkner and Stewie Dempster out of their nation's teams, it would be like taking Rashid Khan out of Afghanistan. But national cricket wasn't that big a thing before World War II. But the format of cricket that was massive was the county game. And even though Khan helped the county sides out, he still didn't allow Dempster to actually play that much for Leicestershire. The most important cricket for Khan was his own games. And that was because he was using them to get the approval of a class of people who had shunned him so far. He bought the best players in cricket to basically move up in his social status. And we might as well just do a few more names. He had another Australian, Vic Jackson. Andy Sandham, who was the first man to score a test triple hundred. He played for Khan as well. Joe Hardstaff, Red Simpson, Paul Gibb, Dodger Weissel, Stan Nichols, and Ewart Astill. I mean, I could just keep listing players off. It was incredible. Legendary Gloucestershire captain, Bev Lyon. 
Cecil Maxwell, who scored 268 from number eight against Leicestershire. Jim Swanton. Khan's team was just far stronger than most sides. It was probably, at its worst, a mid-strength county team, but one that occasionally had just the world's best players in it. And on the few occasions when the opposition put up a challenge, Khan simply extended the lunch break by an hour and served the guests alcohol in excess. At the same time, he ensured that his team members stayed sober. If the match extended to the next day, he often played that famous organ in the theatre himself, late at night, that kept the opposition cricketers awake. Over the years, Khan turned into a workaholic and still retained his passion for cricket. When his health got bad, his doctor requested him to slow down. In 1943, he retired and sold his business to the great Universal Stores. By then, he had more than 300 furniture stores across England. But despite being a hypochondriac, he really refused to take a break even in retirement, and in 1944, he died abruptly at his desk in Stamford Hall. His wife Phyllis sold Stamford Hall and retired to Sussex. She never watched a cricket match after that. While there were certainly downsides to a lot of the things that Khan did, it was kind of before we thought about things from a national point of view, and he probably did more good than harm for cricket. But he was an autocrat, and he restricted his dictatorship to irrelevant matches on his own property. In some ways, it is a bit like hiring the world's greatest singers to perform at your dinner parties. As a patron, cricket had few parallels. But remember, cricket was the thing he loved, but what he craved and needed was the approval of the English establishment. And with that, he probably had more success than he ever did with the bat. Khan became president of both Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire county teams, and he would become a member of the MCC. But his background and profession prevented him from being a member of any MCC committee. He had one chance to break in. After the Bodyline series, the MCC wanted to send Harold Larwood a strong notice. If he didn't apologise for his bowling in that series, when obviously they went all in with the bouncers, Larwood wouldn't be picked to play for England ever again. This task was assigned to Khan. He and Larwood went back a long way. And not just because Khan funded Larwood's county, Nottinghamshire. He also made himself available when Larwood wanted a loan. He had actually paid for a part of Larwood's house. More than anything, Khan had publicly defended Larwood after the Bodyline series, because Knotts was his club. So Khan tried to persuade Larwood to say sorry, but he did not apologise for bowling Bodyline. Not then, not ever, not to Khan, not to anyone. Had Khan succeeded, he might have actually fulfilled his dream of being accepted by the upper echelons of the MCC. But it didn't happen. He bought the best cricketers in the world, had them perform for him in his backyard, and also picked himself for all these games, despite the fact that he must have known that he was just not very good. In some ways, what he did was this weird dream. But the one thing that he always wanted, that respectability from the upper class of English people, well, sadly for him, a little bit like his pads, the air just slowly drained from that idea. Double Century is a podcast on the 99.94 Network. You can download our app via the show notes or look for us on social media to see all the podcasts and audio we produce. If you prefer your podcast ad-free, you can support us on Patreon to get that version. You can find the link in the show notes. Double Century on 99.94 is a podcast narrated, produced and co-written by me, Jared Kimber. Abhishek Mukherjee is the main writer and Nick McCorriston edits, mixes and co-produces the show. Podcast Network.